Well, that's Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. There again, we're going to go verse by verse through here and uh, just savor every bit of it. Um, a little gear shift from chapter 11 and focusing on faith, but yet there's, there's so much in chapter 12 that we can enjoy too. So Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that allows the word to come alive to us. Holy Spirit, quicken our minds and our hearts and get the word deep into our spirits tonight so that it'll bear fruit. We ask that you'd help us to understand and apply what you've written to your bride, to the church. We thank you in advance that we're going to leave here changed, not by a message, not by a lecture, not by the intellect of a man. We're going to leave here changed by your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, a little shift here, talking about the Father's discipline. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there to whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness so we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And let's stop there for this week. So much in there, starting with our great cloud of witnesses that we mentioned last time when we were in Hebrews 11, and then shifting into discipline. I'm going to try to cover both of those topics tonight. You know, last week we talked about that great cloud of witnesses, and I told you it was coming, and it was the first verse of chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so there again, what does that mean, a cloud of witnesses? It sounds kind of, you know, mystical, dreamy. It sounds kind of abstract. That cloud of witnesses are all those people who have gone before us and kept the faith. It's the Old Testament saints, the patriarchs, the prophets, the kings, that kept the faith, why are they a cloud of witnesses? Because they're an example to us of what to do and what not to do. Someone say amen. So it says here in Romans 15, 4, 
For whatever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What's the Old Testament there for? It's types and shadows. It was written for our encouragement. It was written for an example for us. Why do we read about David, Samuel, Jonathan, uh, all the prophets? Why do we read about people like Moses and Abraham and Isaac? Because they're an example to us. They're a witness to us. And they are above us because why? They've been promoted to heaven and they are up there testifying that living for God is the only way to live and that there's a payoff for it and that payoff is eternity in the presence of God. Someone say amen. You know, if everybody just tried their best and they died and went into the dirt, it wouldn't be very encouraging for us to think, well, am I gonna make it? Am I gonna make a difference? How many have just lived life when it gets difficult and think, is this even worth it? Anybody, just me? I'm the only one. Some days I'm like, man, Lord, take me now. Amen. Okay, so I'm with the right people here tonight. And you're just like, man, this is just, you know, unnecessary roughness. It's like that call in football, right? Unne- this is unnecessary. Why? I'm saved. I'm sanctified. I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm on my way to heaven. Let's just get this over with. See, my wife's not here. She'd be yelling at me, no, no, no. Wants to keep me around. But truly, the, the longer we serve the Lord and the more we get sold out to the things of the kingdom, the more we want to be with him and the less we want to be here. So the Old Testament's there, you know, that cloud of witnesses is there as an example to us, and it was written uh, for our instruction. Uh, There are many good Old Testament examples for the New Testament saint to follow, amen? Many good examples, and we can name dozens of them, but there are also bad examples that we should avoid at all costs, Anybody ever noticed with children, you could have 10 good qualities and two negative ones, and which ones do they seem to inherit? Come on, the two negative ones, right? And so, like, there's all these good examples we can follow, but there's some bad examples, too. We've got to follow the good ones and avoid the bad ones at all costs. There's godly prophets, and there was ungodly prophets. You think about Balaam and Balak and that whole situation, you know, prophesying for money. There were godly kings, and there were ungodly kings. There, there were kings that, I mean, most of the kings in the divided kingdom, when you look at them, most of them were wicked and ungodly. It's no wonder why God never wanted Israel to have a king. Because why? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you have too much authority, it, it, it goes to the head of man. Come on. And so, you know, you have good kings. You, even David. David would be considered one of the good things, but there's some things that David did. There's some lines that David crossed that we never want to cross or even come close to, you know. So there's good prophets, there's good priests, there's good kings. Uh, You think of Samuel, what a great example he was. Now, it's a no-brainer for us to to be like, you know what, I want to be more like Jacob than Esau. Someone say amen. Jacob was, you know, shifty, had some character issues, but he cared more for the kingdom than Esau did. All Esau cared about was the land. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. We want to be more like Jacob than we want to be like Esau. We want to be more like David than we do like Saul, amen? Saul didn't honor the Lord by being obedient to him. He was more concerned about what the people thought. He would take himself a little opinion poll to see how the people felt because he didn't want to lose the favor of the people. He was the people's king. The people chose him. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. 
David cared more about pleasing God than pleasing people. And God said, even in David's sin, he's a man after my own heart. So it's a no-brainer. We want to be more like some and less like others. But the bottom line is this. All of us need to look like Jesus when it's all said and done. Amen? We're not being conformed to the image of David. We're not being conformed to the image of Jacob. We're not being conformed to any image but the image of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to get us to look like Jesus. The Old Testament gives us examples, you know, and we can follow them. And if they bring us closer to that goal of being more like Jesus, then so be it. Now, verse, the latter half of verse 1 encourages us to learn from the examples of the faithful who live before us and to avoid the snares of sin. Look what it says. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us or besets us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, I want to say something tonight. The wise person, how many people would, no, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. How many people want to be wise? You know, if you, if you say, I consider myself wise, then you need to be delivered from pride. But we want to be wise. Gucci, like, we, you don't wake up in the morning going, you know, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes today and see how much. No, we want to live in wisdom. So we want to be wise, and I want to say something about wisdom. The wise saint will learn from the good example and from the bad example. I want you to understand that's very important. You say, man, why have I been around people who are doing it wrong? So you can learn from their mistakes. You don't have to learn everything the hard way. You don't have to commit every sin to realize that sin is, you know, oh, that, I shouldn't have done that. Listen, I've never smoked crack before, but I know it's bad right? I've never crossed certain lines that I don't want to. Like, you know, we don't have to try everything once. I remember I was with some guy, well, and he had done a lot of stuff that he shouldn't have done. He goes, well, I only did it once, you know, once this, once that. He tried everything once. And you know what? It robbed his innocence, stole his anointing, and it crushed his potential. We can learn from the good examples and the bad examples if we're wise, if we're wise enough. Listen, some of the most powerful lessons I've learned in my life are from, uh, you know, growing up and, and, and being in the kingdom and being in the ministry. Some of the most powerful lessons I learned from other people is what not to do. Think about watching people do things that just created a, a wake and a trail of disaster and drama and trouble. Think about those things. Why? God lets you see them for a reason so you can learn what not to do. <laughs> this is so important. We, we've got to learn from the good examples and the bad examples. God lets us see them all. You know, the child that's abused by their parents but refuses to continue the generational cycle and doesn't abuse their own children. The person who grows up in an alcoholic household and refuses to give in to drink and become an alcoholic themselves. Come on. See, that's the legacy of the saints. Why? Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we break the pattern. We learn from the good and the bad example. And in the end, if we will learn from both sides, both extremes, we're going to look like Jesus. Most scholars agree that Paul wrote Hebrews. There's some discussion that there's other writers. But in here, you see a very common uh, Pauline uh, construct here when he talks about running a race. You know, these themes are 
things that you're going to see through Paul's writings here. We see it in Hebrews here. He says, what, you know, this great cloud of witnesses that surround us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and every sin which easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's Paul all over that thing. Paul is about fighting the good fight and running the race and finishing the course and keeping the faith, amen? So here's a very Pauline construct here of telling us what? To run the race and to run it with endurance. Every day we have to live in this life is a leg of the race that we run. Now some days, let's just be honest, some days we don't feel like running. And some days we quit running and some days we become spectators. What does that do? That puts us behind in the race. That's, that's a day lost. And I'm not saying that to stress you out because I understand there's a time for a rest. There's a time for Selah, amen? Anybody read the Psalms? Okay, there's a time to take a break, but you know, we've got to think of every day as an opportunity to run the race. Now, keep in mind uh, what will help us go the maximum distance and produce the maximum fruit with the minimum amount of distraction is staying in the race. Remember, when David quit running his race, that's when he got into trouble. David was a king. He was a leader in the military. He should have been out with his army, but he didn't feel like running anymore. Come on, church, preach back at me a little bit. And what did he do? He stayed home. And he stayed home and he let his army go out. You know, it's going so good, I don't even need to be there. Guys, just take care of it for me. The king needs a break. But while he wasn't running his race, he was up on his roof and he sees the bathing beauty, Bathsheba. What's the odds that she's bathing and her name is Bathsheba? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me with this. You say, you know, oh, she shouldn't have been up there on the, well, people bathed on the roof back then. Well, she shouldn't have had her clothes off. People bathed with their clothes off. You know what shouldn't have been? He shouldn't have been there. And everything after that shouldn't have been that he did. I'm not picking on David. I'm not claiming moral superiority to one of the greatest men of God and, and perhaps the greatest king Israel has ever known. But I'm pointing out the fact that when he quit running his race, that's when he got in trouble. And that idle time, you know, that, that downtime that we give ourselves a break. Listen, God is the one who gives us breaks. Don't give yourself a break. I hear people, amen. I hear people, where you been? Oh, I'm taking a break from church. Was that God who told you to take a break? No, while you were taking a break, you went back to your old sin and your old nature and your old patterns, and now you don't want to come back to church. Now your soul's in jeopardy. Oh, pastor, don't talk like that. Well, I have a habit of telling the truth in church, and I know you're here, and so, you know, I just want you to understand that when we take breaks that God didn't ordain for us, many times we find ourselves in trouble. David got in trouble when he stopped running. Stay in the race. Don't take detours. Don't take breaks when you feel like it. Instead, tap into God and allow him to give you endurance. Isaiah 40, 30 uh, through 31 says, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not become weary. So there's this idea where human vigor, human strength, even the young people, even the strong, even the, the mightiest of warriors is going to wear out when? If he runs in his own strength. 
But if we'll wait on the Lord and we'll follow his promptings and we don't give ourselves breaks and we don't take detours because we feel like it. Come on tonight. This is a good preaching. I know it's things a little, but you only have to hear it for a little while. I have to wrestle with it half of the week. So God wants us to stay in the race and we'll find endurance if we trust him to lead the path. Now, endurance comes from waiting on the Lord and Jesus uh, wants us to wait in his presence. So there's a sense where you know, we wait on the Lord and when we're at Jesus's feet, when we're in that place of intimacy, yes, there's a recharging, there's a strengthening. I encourage you every day, get at the feet of Jesus, amen? Well, I gotta read 20 chapters in my Bible. Come on, this is not spiritual gymnastics, amen? You'd be better off reading two lines and meditating on them and getting it they just, well, I got to stay with my reading program so I can say I read through the Bible in a year. Will you cut that out? Listen to me. We savor the word. We get from the Holy Spirit what we need, but we've got to spend time at the feet of Jesus. It's what recharges us. Pastor, I'm worn out. Did you spend time at the feet of Jesus today? Or have you been in his presence? Have you been in prayer? Have you let him speak to you? He's been trying to talk all day. And we answer our phones and we play games and we go on the computer and we entertain ourselves and we go down a rabbit hole and we got on, you know, YouTube and we just, and before you know it, you're looking at me like you're so holy. You know how the day gets robbed. You know how the time gets wasted. We've got to spend time at the feet of Jesus. Now that refreshes us. Waiting on the Lord refreshes us. But also, recognizing who Jesus actually is in our lives refreshes us. The text tells us that Jesus is what? The author and the finisher of our faith. Those words can also be translated the originator and the perfecter of our faith. So there's the sense where, yeah, he's the originator. He's the one who, who, who sparked us into existence. He's the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. He's the one who wooed us by the Holy Spirit and drew us into a relationship where we got born again and became alive in him. Come on tonight. He's the author. He's the originator of our faith, but he's also the finisher. You know, Jesus... Three times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1.8, Revelation 21.6, and Revelation 22.13. Uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega, what? The beginning and the end. He's the author and the finisher, the originator and the perfecter, the Alpha and the Omega. I want you to think of Jesus as the two bookends of your life. Anybody read books anymore? Hard copies, right? I remember having bookends. Just when I was a kid, you know, you'd line up some books and you'd have the two bookends. Without the bookends, what happens? It falls down, doesn't it? Jesus is the thing that bookends our life. He, he begins our faith. He's with us throughout the whole journey and he's there at the end. He, he brings us to life and he keeps us by his power until we fall into his arms at the end of our lives. So it makes sense because he's the alpha and the omega that he would become exactly that in the life of every believer because he originated our faith and he'll perfect it. God perfects what concerns us. God's keeping power is in our lives. Come on, Wednesday night. Do you ever feel like I'm not gonna make it? I don't think, I, come on, anybody ever feel like, man, this is like, I'm wearing thin, I'm, listen, he's got you. Stay close to him, stay at his feet, amen. The, nobody can snatch you out of his hand. 
But you and I can wander away and, and go into the devil's backyard, can't we? Stay close to Jesus. He's the bookends of your faith. Uh, the latter half of verse 2, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What, a, what an incredible uh, verse there, ver, the latter half of verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, think about that. This verse gives one of the main reasons why Jesus went to the cross for us. Yes, he went to be obedient to the Father. Yes, he went because it was de his destiny. Yes, he went because that's the reason that he came. But one of the main reasons that Jesus went to the cross for us is because of the future joy that the cross would produce. And I want you to get this. Future joy, it's important that we understand that. It's not what the cross was going to be when he endured it. It's what it was going to produce in the future that he embraced it. Why? Because there was nothing fun about the cross when he went through it. And we got to check this out here. He endured the cross for us. Why? Because there was a joy on the other side of it to see souls saved and snatched out of the fire and the power of sin broken and lives changed and captives set free. Come on, all of that was there on the other side of the cross. Uh, so, you know, Jesus looked at the cross and he's like, this is not going to be fun. You know why? Because he was covered in flesh. And nobody's flesh wants to be crucified. We don't even want to be told what to do. We don't, we don't even want to be disciplined. We're going to get to that in a minute. Imagine crucified. God has to paddle me and I'm in a bad mood. Now he says, now, now I'm going to crucify you. Say what? Come again? Jesus, you know, the cross was not a fun thing. There was no joy in the cross. There was future joy by what the cross accomplished. Now, you might think, well, Jesus did that for, for the payoff in the end, for the future. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I want you to get here. So when the Father tells us to wait, when the Father delays our gratification, come on. How many times, like, I want it, Lord, I've been praying, I want it now, and the, and the gratification is delayed. When God says, wait, when God delays our gratification, when he says, sow now and reap later, he's asking us to do the same thing he asked his only son to do. Jesus didn't get it all up front. He paid first, and then he, he enjoyed the joy of what the cross produced. So when God says to you, wait, it's proof that you're a son. Why? It's proof that you're a daughter. Why? Because he made Jesus wait. When he delays our gratification, don't get angry. Come on, there's a payoff in the future. God is not unjust. He sees your sacrifice. The phrase despising the shame. Uh, Jesus, what? He, he endures the cross for the joy that was set before him, but then what? Despising the shame. That little phrase right there shows the humanity of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus' flesh didn't want to be crucified. He despised the shame of it. What did he say in the garden as he prayed? If this cup can pass from me. What is he saying to the Father? Do, do you have a plan B? Because I'm all ears right now. If there's another way, have you, ever, have you ever done that with God? God's like, we're going to go through the storm. Uh, is, is there something behind curtain number two? Jesus is in the garden, he's travailing, his disciples are falling asleep, and he's, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, why? Because it's a bitter cup, why? Because there's no joy in it. 
Jesus' flesh didn't want to be crucified, and that shows his humanity. Jesus didn't want to be tortured and made a public spectacle of before his adversaries. Do you realize he hung there on that cross just about naked, beat, battered, fighting for every breath, and at the foot of his cross, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law mocked him and hurled insults at him. He saved others. Can't you save yourself? Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. You know, they, they sat there and what? They ridiculed him. Jesus didn't want to go through that to have his creation mock him at his most tender moment in life. Huh. He didn't want to do that any more than our flesh would want to do that. Jesus didn't want to be grilled by the high priest. He didn't want to be uh, convicted with false witnesses. He didn't want to stand before Pilate and give an account. Could you imagine the creator of the universe? Through him, all things were made that are made. Jesus is intimately involved in creation, created Pilate, knit him together in his mother's womb, and this little worm is now grilling Jesus. Wow. It's so far beneath his majesty. And, and, and the reference, you know, I can call some legions of angels here, Pilate, if you really want to see who I am. But there again, echoing in his ears, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't enjoy the cross, the shame of it, the ridicule of it, the mocking of it, the standing before his own creation to give an account for himself, being spat upon and beat and jeered at by a crowd, crowned with thorns, pierced through his hands, his feet, and his side. None of that appealed to the human part of Jesus. Yet the spiritual part of Jesus, because he was fully God and fully man, the spiritual part said, not my will, but yours be done. And that was his conclusion in the matter. And that's why he endured the cross. Not that it wasn't miserable going through it, but it was for the joy on the other side of it. When God asks us to wait, dear saints, when God delays our gratification, when the thing that we want is not coming today and we don't know when, we've got to trust him that he's perfecting us and that he's accomplishing something in the waiting in us. After the cross, Jesus does something. It says here, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, you might look at that and go, okay, you know, Jesus came from the Father. He was born in that manger. Uh, you know, he, he, he lived, he died, he, he rose, and now he's back where he started, come full circle. The seating is very important that we notice. It's not just that, you know, Jesus was tired, he accomplished his mission, he sat down. No. Being seated in Scripture symbolizes completion, authority, and dominion. You, as, a, as a warrior, as a leader, you don't sit down until the battle's won, the campaign's over, and the enemy's defeated. You don't sit down. Jesus wouldn't have sat down if it wasn't finished. When he sat on the cross, it is finished. He wasn't being dramatic. He was telling the truth. He still had a few things to do uh, on the other side of that empty tomb, but for, for every intent and purpose, it was done. Why? Because his sacrifice broke the power of sin, and it did it once for all, and it was done. So now he's done, and what does he do? He sits down, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Completion, authority, the name above every name, dominion over heaven and earth, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. It is finished. And he sat down. 
after the cross, he seated. That's very important for us. Why? Because if Jesus was still wrestling with the devil, if he was still tying up the loose ends, if he was still, you know, uh, you know fighting the battle for our souls and, and, and for, the, you know, victory over sin, we would be in a whole lot of trouble. The fact that it is finished is very good news for us because it means we are completely secure in him. Don't be insecure. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't come unraveled every time the devil says, boo. Oh, I feel the resistance. But I like being scared, but I like being the victim, but I like pretending I can't because then I don't have to. Huh. It is finished. He is seated. He has power, dominion, and authority. Look at all the great examples in the Old Testament for us to follow. Let's follow them. Look at the examples of things we shouldn't do. Let's heed the warning and not make the same mistakes. Let's experience the presence of God at the feet of Jesus through relationship and recognize his lordship in our lives because he is the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher, the bookends of our life. Now, the text shifts here, verses 3 through 11, shifts gears into a kind of a, an explanation of how we should respond and understand the discipline of God in our lives. How, how many have experienced the discipline of God in your life? Okay, good, save people. The truth is that is one of the proofs that we belong to him. But discipline is very important. Remembering what Jesus went through when he was on the earth here, uh, and what he grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. What was that all about? Well, the flesh part of Jesus had to be tamed and broken. He carried the flesh, and it had the same capacity to sin that our flesh has. Jesus didn't have special flesh. He had stinking, rotten, sinful flesh just like ours. It's just that he never sinned to confirm the nature of his flesh so he was able to break the power of it and then offer his life as a ransom for us. Remember, as Jesus walked throughout the earth, he endured all kinds of hostility. Uh, verse 3 you know, talks about this hostility. I want to get into this a little bit here. It says, for consider him who has endured such hostility. That's Jesus. He came, his own received him not. His own people, the Jews, rejected him, didn't believe in him. Mankind categorically rejected him. Even his own followers weren't quite sure who he was. For consider him who had endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 3 is a powerful verse for us. You know, Jesus went through a whole lot when he walked to earth. And it's only logical that when you face resistance or when you face hostility, that it would discourage you and wear you out. You know, have you ever been through just an emotional situation with somebody? Have you ever been through, you know, a, a battle, maybe a legal battle or, you know, uh, something in your family or just something really emotional and come out the other side of it and feel like just depleted, beat up and empty? Anybody? So Jesus knew that feeling, and he wants us to know some things about that. The fact that, you know, the hostility that he faced would wear him out, make him weary, it's going to do the same thing to us. 
You know, it's logical that our souls would become weary. It's logical that sometimes we would even become discouraged. There are people that are super spiritual that would rebuke you if you ever confessed that you were depressed or discouraged. Yet David the psalmist said, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Amen? We all deal with stuff like this. We shouldn't hide behind spirituality and pretend we don't. What Jesus faced, you know, wore him out. Dealing with people wore him out. You say, how do you know that? Because he withdrew himself routinely and he went to places, remote places. Why? Because there's no people there. (laughs) Sometimes we just got to get away from everything when we're worn out when we're weary. Why? Because we face very real hostility. Now listen, the the kingdom of darkness is hostile towards you. If you're a Christian and you're trying to follow God, there is a kingdom that is diametrically opposed to you accomplishing the purpose of God in your life. And it's the kingdom of darkness. And it doesn't take a rest and it doesn't go on vacation and it doesn't ease up on you. Come on. It's always in your face, 24-7, coming at you, trying to derail you, trying to tempt you, trying to discourage you. That hostility of the kingdom of darkness is very real. And the closer we get to God, the more we realize we are at war with the kingdom of darkness. Hostility, resistance, it's real. You know what? The world that loves sin, the people around us that revel in sin, they are hostile towards us. They could smile at us. They could wave at your neighbor. How's the lawn doing? Yeah. But the world that loves sin is hostile to the Christian who refuses it. And again, the closer we get to God, the more we're going to feel that hostility. If you're sitting out there going, I don't feel anything. I just fit in, man. Everybody likes me. You better do a soul check. I'm serious. The kingdom of darkness is hostile towards us. Those who love sin are hostile towards us. The system of this world is hostile towards us. This world is getting pushier and pushier and more brazen. Why? Because it's being prepared for the Antichrist. And all that we've been through in the last year is just a dress rehearsal for the one world system and the Antichrist. And you see all of what's coming. You see it. You say, Pastor, aren't you scared? Not one bit. I know that God is going to take his bride out of here. He's going to rapture his church. He's not going to let us go through. Why? You say, well, you know, why why aren't we going to go through that? Because we are not appointed for wrath. The wrath that is about to be poured out is not for the church. It's not for the bride. Any husband who would treat his bride like that needs to sit down for counseling. God's going to take care of us. Yeah, we're going to feel some pressure. We're going to feel affliction. We're going to go through some stuff. The word says so. But the system of this world is hostile towards us. And the more the division between the light and the darkness comes, the more polarizing the the evil and righteousness becomes, the more hostile it's going to be towards us. So get ready and be looking up and get your life ready to be raptured and taken out of here, amen? But don't expect the world to celebrate the church. It'll oppose the church, and we've seen it. And the apostate church will oppose us. Those that say, oh, you fundamentalist, evangelical, Bible-thumping crazies, you guys are, you guys are crazy. 
I've heard denominational churches say about fundamental evangelical types who actually believe the word of God as true and should be lived. Compare us to Al-Qaeda. We're like, you know, Islamic fundamentalists, those Christian fundamentalists. Pastor Mike said it on Sunday. They call us terrorists. How dare you not fall in line and comply? How dare you stand on the word of God and not bow to fear? How dare you? The world is hostile. The apostate church is hostile. The kingdom of darkness is hostile. Those who celebrate sin are hostile. So all the hostility, I hope you're feeling it. I'm working hard to make you feel it. <laughs> feeling that, oh, no wonder I'm weary. No wonder I'm a little worn out. No, no wonder, you know, I, I lose my balance sometimes. Yeah, it's all that hostility. The heat's getting turned up. And, and understand something, you know, there's always been resistance against the people of God while they're on the earth. Always. Look at Israel. From Israel's inception as a nation in the Old Testament, it had enemies that wanted to destroy it from the minute God conceived it. And you know what? Nothing has changed right now. The nations of the world are lining up to destroy Israel. If you see the dog and pony show and the ridiculous rhetoric that is being poured out upon Israel now as it tries to defend itself from uh, rocket attacks and having its civilian population killed, if you see, you say, what's that all about? It's resistance. And God's people have always known it, and the church has always known it. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. We should expect it. And I know in the West we've been in a little bubble, and we've been protected by a lot of God's grace. But you know what? The bubble's pulled back a little bit, so we feel the heat. Because you know what? That persecution will purify the church, and he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkles. Amen? God, get the spots and the wrinkles out of me. God, get the spots and the wrinkles out of us. Verse 4 makes the point that in our resistance to sin and, and enduring all the hostility we face, that we haven't crossed certain lines. Now, verse 4 is kind of humorous to me. I want you to listen to it. It says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Now, think about that. What's God saying there? You know, yeah, you feel the hostility, you feel the pushback. Come on, we all feel it. We said amen. But the truth is, it hasn't killed us yet. You know how some people go complain and whine, and then, and, you know, your mother or somebody say, but did you die? And that's what God is saying here. It's been tough. It's been hot. It, there's been a little pushback, but it hasn't killed you. You haven't shed blood over it. You, you haven't been, you know, it's just been kind of light. And what he's saying is here, you know what? Those who have gone before us, that great cloud of witnesses, they did shed blood over it. They were killed for it. They were martyred for their faith. So while it's hot and we respond and we take inventory of our own lives, we don't have much to complain about. You know, basically verse four is here. You know, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So God is pretty much saying, hey, cupcakes, suck it up. Okay, a lot of people went through a whole lot more than you. So don't come unglued on me now, amen. So there's a sense where we need to have some endurance. We need to have some tenacity. We need to have some courage in the face of resistance. Uh, verses 5 through 11 remind us how we should feel about the correction of God. Now I'm going to move rapidly through 5 through 11 here. But this, you know, 
these verses here tell us how we should view and how we should deal with the correction of God. And if we are his children, he's going to correct us. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So, you know, you haven't resisted. You haven't shed blood. You, you, you feel the resistance and you feel the effects of sin. But, you know, I think you've forgotten the exhortation that was addressed to you as sons. With that suggesting that God is reminding us what we signed up for. You know, we want to reign with Christ, but we got to be willing to, to also suffer with him. We get water baptized why? It identifies us with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, amen? When you go in that water, you know, and you go under, that's death. When you're held a little bit, that's the burial. When you come up, that's the resurrection, amen? It's identification with Christ. So if we want the resurrection power, we've got to embrace some of the persecution, some of the things that need to die in us, amen? Our own will, our own sinful nature, our own agenda. <laughs> oh, this is fun preaching, isn't it? But it's what's in the text here, and it's what God's telling us, you know, that, you know, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Guys, did you forget up what you signed up for? You know, we, we didn't, you know, get aboard, you know, the luxury cruise line. We're not on the carnival uh, floating boat with 18 meals a day and twin lobster tails and steaks at 3 in the morning. Smile, it's good for your face. It takes wrinkles away. <laughs> We're in a fight. We're in a war. We're, we're part of the army of God. We're in the kingdom, and the kingdom of darkness is opposed to us. There's resistance. Uh, so did you forget, you know, did you forget that you're sons, that you're part of the kingdom? The latter half of verse 5 through 7 tells us, don't despise or be discouraged by chastening. So when God corrects us, when God punishes us or when he spanks us, you know, there's times in my life where it might sound weird, but I could feel like, man, I got a spanking from God on that one. Anybody humble enough to admit they've gotten spankings before from amen? Well, you, you know, you just were out of line and you did something or you said something. And then in the heat of the moment, wow. And now later you're in that, you're in the secret place and the spirit of God is just, you know, he, he's just working you over, man. Uh, and then you feel convicted and you feel like, wow, I should have never said that, should have never done that, should have never crossed that line. And God disciplines us. He chastens us. And there's many times as Christians we feel, come on, God, the world's beating up on us. Sin's beating up on us. The devil's coming after us with temptation. And now you're spanking us? Man, it's tough to be us. Have you ever felt like that? Come on, God, give me a break. And he does. And he's very gracious. But you know what? As with most of us, we can look back at the spankings we got from our parents and thought, man, did we deserve that? And all the ones that, you know, all the ones that we didn't get that we deserved, amen? That's why some of you are like that. You didn't get enough spankings. Did you ever meet somebody you like, they didn't get any spankings? There's some kids today that have never heard no, and it shows. But God's not that kind of parent. He, he spanks us. He disciplines us. You know, but what? Don't despise or be discouraged by the chastening. Why? Because it proves our sonship. It proves that we're loved. It proves that we're his children. Uh, sons are disciplined by their father. Verse 7 says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
Man, if you see parents that don't discipline their children, you know what? Even children realize that when there's boundaries, when there's rules, when there's consequences for bad behavior, that that's a good thing. Most children want, you know, they want boundaries. They want that stuff. And this generation is that, you know, oh, let them do whatever they want to do and give them a time out and put them in the corner. Send them to their room and they got, you know, all these, everything in there. It's like, you know, a command center, video games, everything. Parents joke, you know, now, now you want to punish your kids, send them to your room. Send them to your, you got nothing. They got all that stuff. So, you know, if God doesn't discipline us, if, you know, if he doesn't treat us like sons, there's a problem there. So we shouldn't be discouraged by it. We shouldn't despise it. It's not going to be fun, but yet God loves us, and that's why he does it. Verse 8, if God isn't disciplining us, there you know, then we really need to look in the mirror. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Whoa, that's not good, amen? I want to be a child of God, amen? I want to be saved. I want my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Anybody else? Okay, if you want that, it comes with discipline. Look, if I'm going to be your dad, if I'm going to be your daddy God, I'm going to discipline you. And when I do, don't be discouraged. It's not because I'm trying to destroy you. It's because I'm trying to perfect you and and produce some things in you that we're going to talk about. But the fact that some people refuse discipline or never get discipline is an indication that they're not really born again. You could sit in church with a Bible. You can listen to sermons. You could be a faithful attender. I know people that are faithful attenders of churches, yet they're not born again. Oh, and God, you know, God just gives me everything. Everything just goes easy for me. You, You better take a spiritual inventory, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith, amen? I like it that I'm on a short leash. I like it that the Holy Spirit's all over me. I like it that God is in my face when my attitude is wrong to prove sonship. All sons are disciplined by their fathers, and we're no different. Our heavenly father is no different. Verse 8 is telling us if we're not disciplined and we don't embrace discipline, we're illegitimate sons. Verse 9 and 10 tells us that our earthly fathers disciplined us as they saw fit. Now, there again, I said children like boundaries, and so when our parents disciplined us, although we don't like it, we can look back and respect them for it, amen? Because it shows what? This is what I tell my sons when I discipline them. Look, I'm not trying to bust your chops or or ruin your life. I want you to have fun. But look, I want to produce godliness in you, amen. I'm your father. I'm responsible for how you turn out. And you're not going to act that way in this house. You're not going to talk to my wife like that. We have good dental insurance. But you're not going to talk to my wife like that. You guys are dead tonight. My father disciplined me when I lived in his house, you know, and my, my mom didn't wait for dad to get home. She had her own strap. To... My mom's from the Bronx. She knows how to swing that thing. She can kick a clog down the hallway 30 feet and hit you in the back of the head. There was discipline in our house. Now, you know, we didn't necessarily like it when, <laughs> when we were going through it. You know, we were not allowed to do a lot of things, and that's why, you know, we turned out halfway decent. 
But you, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, this stinks. When you look back, thank God I didn't do that. Thank God. I don't, you know, all those people that did whatever they want, they're all messed up. They're addicted to everything. They got child support payments all over the place. They, they have no discipline. They can't hold down a job. Come on now. So we don't like the discipline when it comes, but we respect the discipline we receive because we know it was about love. It knows that it proves our sonship and we're not illegitimate children. A godly father disciplines his child, not for his own benefit, but for a different motivation. Listen, listen to verse 10. For they indeed for a, few day, for a few days chastened us as it seemed best to them. So that time when you're little enough for your parents to discipline you, it's a short season. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. So the point of our parents disciplining us is to make us you know, decent people. The point of God disciplining us is to make us holy. And that's the point of the drill. If you won't embrace discipline, if you won't let the Holy Spirit correct you, if you won't hear the word of God and allow it to just break your heart and break up that fallow ground, it's amazing. People sit in church, the word goes forth, and I know it's hitting the mark. I know it's hitting the target, but I see unchanged lives. Why? Because they let it bounce off, and I won't respond. I don't. There's times where I'm preaching, and there's correction that people need to hear, but they don't make the correction. And what happens? Holiness is not produced. Stubbornness. The stiff neck shall be destroyed suddenly and without remedy. Pay attention to what the Holy Spirit's saying in your life. Pay attention when the pastor's talking about sin and the Holy Spirit's going, that's you, you need to stop, you better repent, cut it out. (laughs) Dangerous place to be but we reject the correction and we despise it and we refuse it. The motive of God is to make us holy, to drive every sin out of our lives and to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, verse 11 is the last one we're going to cover tonight, and it is really the truth about discipline, and it's what we kind of need to walk away with here. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Is it going to stink? Yep, sometimes it's going to stink. Is it going to sting? Sometimes it's going to sting. But in the end, it's going to produce righteousness and holiness. So embrace it and thank God for it and respond to it in humility and make the corrections that the Holy Spirit brings to your heart. You'll never be sorry that you did. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, this little excerpt here, these 11 verses from Hebrews 12, they speak to all of us. They speak to me. Father, as I deliver this, I have to live it. It cuts us a little bit. It warns us. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember that we're your children, that we're not illegitimate children. So you're going to discipline us, and we need to respond to your correction Help us, Lord God, to run the race with endurance and not to, not to be angry or hard-hearted when, when you correct us. Help us to learn from the good examples we've seen and, and to learn from the bad examples of what not to do. I pray you would allow wisdom to develop in the hearts of your people. Help us, Lord, to not be those who demand instant gratification. Jesus endured the cross 
so that he could see that future joy. Help us to endure the hardships of this life and to lose our life so that in the end we'll gain it. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Give him praise tonight.